Nehemiah uh, chapter 10 is a follow-up of uh, that great chapter 9 where the people cried. And, and that was a good thing, you know, when we cry, when we confess. But in chapter 10, they commit. And that's very important. I'm reminded of the fact that within each of our hearts, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but in essence, there's a throne. There is a throne in your heart. Question, who sits on the throne? You know, for most people, bottom line is you sit on your throne. You call the shots. You determine what you do with your days and, you know, the dollars. And that's not a good place to be. See, for us, we need to come to a place where uh, it is not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus Christ must sit on your throne of your heart. You see, so it's cool when we cry and it's cool when we confess. But the question is whether or not we have committed to live a life of obedience unto the Lord of Lordship Jesus Christ. And that's what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 10. That's what this commitment is all about, that Jesus Christ should be crowned as king in our lives. And so in chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, I don't know if you guys can see that right there. There's, there's a grip of names. There's a whole bunch of names. There's 84 names. I dare you to read it. I dare you. <laughs> I mean, I could probably fumble through it. I will read verse 1. Now, those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah. And so, you know, you go through here and you see all these names. We have a list of people who placed their seal. It would be a clay uh, stamp it would be the equivalent of today's signature. They signed this document, so to speak, which in which they as a nation were making a covenant, a pledge of promise that they were to be the people of God willing to do the will of God. And that's so important for us. You know, Warren Risby said putting a seal on this document was a serious matter because it really meant taking a solemn oath. And, you know, may I remind you that when you profess Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you also profess Him to be your Lord. You know, we don't go into this whole thing lightly. We make a commitment. And so, you know, that's what we do. Lord, you are the one who calls the shots. Uh, To be honest with you, I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but you are to bring every thought into captivity. I mean, you can't, you know, be thinking crazy things in your heart or your mind. You're to bring every word into the surrender of the Savior. You can't think things you shouldn't. You shouldn't be saying things you shouldn't. We shouldn't be doing things that God calls us not to do or not doing things that He calls us to do. We shouldn't be people who are not lined up with the Word of God. And so what happened was Israel, that's exactly what happened. They lived their own life. They called their own shots. They worshiped the gods of this world. And God tried to get their attention, and they wouldn't listen. So eventually, God had to send them away into bondage in Babylon. And so they were there for 70 years. They came back. You guys know the story. We've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah. And they rebuilt the temple, and Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. And now Ezra is being used by God to restore temple worship. Because it's not enough just to have a building. You've got to have a relationship with God. And so that's what's going on now. They're confessing, they're crying, and now they're coming to a place where, where they commit. You know, I'm going to commit to serve the Lord from this day 
forward. And so all these guys, they place their names on it. There in verse 1, we see a Nehemiah who was the governor. And then there's a list of priests all the way through verse 8. There's uh, 22 of them. And then in verse 9, you'll notice it says the Levites. The Levites were the ones that were Levites. No, I'm just joking. They weren't those guys. The Levites were the helpers to the priests. So we're going to see later they were gatekeepers. They were singers. I mean, they were the helpers to the priests. There's a total of three mentioned there. In verses 10 through 13, you have others described as brethren. 14 are, are mentioned. And then in verses 14 through 27, you have the leaders of the people who signed the document to enter into the covenant with God. Uh, 44 more there. So it comes to a total of 80 for people. And so we read in verse 28 what they were getting into. Notice it says, now the, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. And so, in one sense, three things stand out here as a summary of this section, as the principles to this covenant. Number one, separation. They were called out of the world. Notice that again right there. These people had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. So there was, first of all, uh, there is a call out of the world. Secondly, they were called into a walk with God. Notice that there in verse 29, they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. And then thirdly, uh, all this was to take place by means of the word of God. And we see that in verse 29 and, and 30. Notice again that these people had separated themselves, everyone who had knowledge, so those who understood, right? It's interesting, they separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. Notice to the law of God. Interesting, to the law of God. And we see the same thing there in verse 29, to walk in God's law, which is given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord. And so, you know, we're going to kind of touch on these things and then we'll get into the specifics of it and then we'll try to summarize how the Old Testament Laws, uh, how they apply to us as New Testament Christians, okay? And so the first thing we saw right there was how they were called out of the world, the, the separation. And you guys, we live in the world, right? We have to. We are called to reach the world. God loves the people of the world because, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for the people of the world. So we're in the world, but we're not of the world. You know, the way of the world, uh, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys knew this or not. Most of you probably do. But the word church, this comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means the called out ones. If you're Spanish here, you know iglesia. It's kind of the same as ecclesia, right? That's the church called out of the world. And so we need to be very, very careful. Uh, the Bible says so many things in regards to this. 
that we are not to love the world. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It says that we are not even to be friends with the world. In James 4, verse 4, we're not to be spotted by the world. In James 1, 27, because if we do all that, Romans 12, 2 says we will be conformed to this world. And then eventually, if we don't repent and get right, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two says we will be judged with the world. And so we're talking about the world system. We're talking about the sway of Satan. We're talking about the lies of Lucifer and the way they try to fit you into their mold. And, and what, what, we, what we find as Christians, as believers in God, whether it's old or new, is God called us out of that. God called us out of that bondage. I remember what it was like when I was in the world. I could not stop drinking. I could not stop the drugs. I could not stop the sex. I couldn't. That was bondage. You know, I mean, the enemy made me say things and curse words. I mean, because my, my heart was filthy. I couldn't stop. We were in bondage. God called us out of that. And as they're entering to a covenant with God, it's got to stop, start there. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the Bible says you are to put off the old man before you can put on the new man. And so that's how it starts. It's, it's out of the world, right? There's that separation. But you're not just called out of the world. Oh, I don't smoke or, or chew or run with those who do. It's not just you start doing you know, bad things. Now you're into a walk with God. We see that there in verse 29, that that walk is so important. You know, I don't want you guys to think this is about rules and regulations. It's a relationship, you know? When you look at the book of Genesis in the very beginning, it's interesting how God walked in the garden. You know what that tells me? That tells me that before the fall, Adam and Eve, they walked with God. Imagine what that must have been like, literally walking with God. Do you guys ever go for walks out of curiosity? Some of you here, you walk with your spouse. Some walk with the dog. You know how that goes, right? It's kind of cool. There's something about walking. When my wife and I walk together, I don't know what it is, man. There's like a, a, there's a beautiful uh, intimacy, communion. We talk. Because for whatever reason, when you're everywhere else, there's too many distractions. But now you're just walking together, you're talking. There's something about that that is absolutely beautiful. Well, that's what our Christian life is. Can you imagine the love of God and that we have the privilege to walk with Him? And He leads us where we need to to go. And He shows us even how to walk. That's what we see here in the scriptures, you know, it's interesting, even in the Old Testament, way back in Genesis 5.24, the Bible says that Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. When you get into right relationship, even after the fall, you can still walk with God. And that's an interesting passage right there because it's uh, referenced also in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, the Bible says, by faith, Enoch was raptured. He was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found. Why? Because God had taken him. You know, the Lord's coming. The Lord is coming any day. We see the signs everywhere. Even in this election, there are signs everywhere. Are you really, truly ready for that? You know, when Enoch was raptured, because he is a picture of the rapture of the church, he was walking with God. By faith, Hebrews says, he was, 
He was pleasing God because he had faith in God. You know, so, you know, what we find in this covenant and this commitment is that they were called out of the world and they were called into a walk with God, which is so beautiful. And But all this happens by means of the word of God. And so first there's separation, then there's relation, then there's revelation. And I always try to tell people, you know, that God really does have a plan for your life. It's not about cash. It's not about a career. It's about a cause. It's not about, you know, hey, the paycheck. No, it's about a purpose. God created us for a reason. He wants us to go to heaven and exalt Him. And as we're on our way to heaven, He wants us to take as many people with us as we can. And so we got to get caught up in that cause. And you know, as we're, we're reading the scriptures, I, I mean, I just cannot overemphasize to you how important it is that you're, saturate, you're saturating yourself in the scriptures. That you, and I, you know, you've got to have a plan, a reading plan in your Bible. You know, I, I mean, I tell people this. I say, God has a plan for your life. And the primary way he's going to guide you is by his word. Sometimes verses pop out and you're like, hey, God gave me a scripture. But most of the time it's just that he teaches you what it means. He teaches you how to live life, what it is to be a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, you know, a friend, a pastor, a worker. Every relationship, God has all the directions there in the Bible. How to be a minister. And so, you know, when you're reading the scriptures, God's plan for your life, it's so cool, it just, it, just comes, it just comes together. So, man, be in the word. As you're studying the scriptures, what they decided to do was to be obedient to them. I've told you guys many times, I encourage you to love the Bible, learn the Bible, but more than that, you've got to live the Bible. I mean, God's not impressed with you being able to quote it, that praise God, or even me. Sometimes I think, well, I taught it, Lord. Isn't that good enough? And God says, no. <laughs> it's not good enough that you know it or you heard it or even that you taught it. Question, are you living it? See, and that's where the commitment comes in. You know, the, the great uh, cross-reference here, I think that would be so appropriate, is found in Psalms and in verse Chapter 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And I love this, and whatever he does shall prosper. And so, you know, they enter into this covenant. And this is a very, very serious covenant. So serious that they even pronounce their own sentence if they did not follow through. Notice again there in verse 29, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. And, and by the way, walking is not just, you know, uh, um, I don't know, not just uh, a thing where, you know, you're, you're just kind of taking steps and thinking it aimlessly. It's, a, it's your life. It is your moral journey in life. 
And so they actually took this so seriously that they said, you know what, we'll enter into a curse. So serious that they pronounced their own sentence in advance if they did not follow through with this commitment. You know, and, and for us, praise God, you know, we're the children of God. We are blessed by God. We cannot be cursed by others. Do you guys know that? Just in case you think, hey, I saw someone over there and they had a voodoo doll of me and they were sticking pins in it, you know. <laughs> or you know what, you know, that witch doctor over there or that Satanist over there. Let me tell you something. They cannot touch you. You are God's children. They can't. We cannot be cursed by the devil. I don't care how much they come against you. You know, Satan himself came against Job. But in the end, what ended up happening? Job learned more about God and he grew. And the Bible says that he was blessed more in the end than in the beginning. What the enemy intends for evil, God will use for good. But what we find is that although others can't curse us, in a roundabout sense, we can curse ourselves. Did you guys know that? That's what happened with Balaam. When Balak hired him to curse the people in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, you know, he says, you know, eventually, I don't want to tell you guys the whole story because it will take too long, but eventually when he did go, you know, he said, I, I can't curse them. You know, it says in, in, in Numbers 23, I will read this to you in verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent or change his mind. He has said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, Balaam says, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. So, you know, you can't be cursed by others. God will bless your life. But... What ended up happening when you read the whole story, Numbers 25.1 and Numbers 31.16, is Balaam said, but you can tempt them to fall into sexual immorality. These men, you go take the girls over there, they dress a certain way, they seduct, seduce them, and they fell into idolatry and adultery, and they died. And in a roundabout way, they cursed themselves. I was talking to a guy the other day, you know, and no one of you here, so don't think while well, he's talking about so-and-so, you know. You guys don't know him. Anyways, um, he's having an affair on his wife. So I'm saying, cut it off. And he's saying, I can't. And here he is, I'm talking to him and his wife. And I told him this. I said, you know what? God is gracious and God is good, but I have seen men die in your situation. You need to fear God. You see, so the enemy can't curse us, but, but we can curse ourselves. So in one sense, looking at this right here, there, you know what? It adds up a little bit, you guys. Don't misunderstand me. God is gracious and God is loving and God is wonderful. But if you're here as a Christian thinking that you can live in defiant, presumptuous, open-eyed sin then get ready because God loves you so much and he will chasten you. He will. And so, you know, this is the, the, the seriousness of the covenant that they entered into. Now, I will say this. Having said all that, let me ask you a question. Should we do this nowadays? Should we promise to obey and if not, ask God to curse us? No. <laughs> Probably not. 
Here's the thing, okay? We enter into a new covenant now by faith, not works. And once we're saved, listen, we're better feeding off of his promises and not ours. You know, because how many of us here, you're like, okay, Lord, I promise I'll never sin again. Have you ever done that? (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, we try, but we will fall short. I would encourage you to fall in love with the Lord. Give him your heart. But you know what? We don't have to live in a life of us making promises. I think we're better off just living off of his promises. And so they give, first of all, the general you know, principles of this, what they would do called out and called in to this walk and word. But then they get specific. And so look at verse 30. It says, We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters... For our sons. And so, you know, first it's a general thing, now it's a very specific thing, right? They would not marry unbelievers, is basically what they're saying. You know, and they say the number one reason that people get married nowadays, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, number one reason, infatuation. Did you know that? And scientists tell us that infatuation wears off after 12 months, okay? So I don't know if you need to wait a year before you get married, but I don't know, there's something there, right? Some say they married for affection, uh, attraction, social status, or to get ahead in business. Bottom line is, they did it against the will and word of God. Now, some people say, well, as long as we love each other, it'll all work out. But the question needs to go beyond you know, that type of puppy love or infatuation. The, the better question is, will the marriage enjoy God's blessings and fulfill God's will? If you're here today and you're a Christian, single Christian, whatever you do, man, do not enter into a relationship with a non-believer. And that's not just for boyfriend and girlfriend. That's also for friends. It's also for business partners. You know, if you're here and your best friend's not a Christian and you go to them for counsel, what are they going to tell you? They'll be an instrument in, in the hands of the devil. You're destined for disaster when your boyfriend or girlfriend or best friend or business partner is not a believer. And we have that articulated in 2 Corinthians six thirteen through chapter 7, verse 1. And so that was one of the specifics, that they would not be unequally yoked. And then in verse 31, he says, And if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce, and the exacting of every debt. And so now they get into the Sabbath. And so here's where you might wonder, well, how does it apply to me? Um, I think it's important to know as we're studying the Bible that this is the Old Covenant. And when you look at the law of the Old Covenant, you have uh, the moral law, you have the civil law, you have the ceremonial law. That was given to Israel, the civil and ceremonial law. But, but you guys got to know, we're now under a new covenant. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled the legal requirements of the law. And so, you know, those things were, were shadows of the substance. But the Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. These things were written for our own admonition. And so, 
you've got to study the Old Testament. I was talking to, I remember one time a guy told Pastor Roll, he said, you shouldn't, you shouldn't teach the Old Testament, just the New Testament. No, we need to teach the full counsel of God. That's why it's so critical for us that we teach through the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, that way you get everything. That's why I encourage you, because it will take me, I, I don't, I'm probably going to die before I finish teaching the whole Bible. We'll see, I don't know. Hopefully we'll get raptured together. You guys excited about that? Right? I want to fly, but you know, I mean, I would encourage you to read your whole Bible. Read it. This is profitable for us. And so you're like, well, how is it profitable, Manny, since... You know, how does that whole Sabbath thing, for example, work for us nowadays? And, you know, there are principles that we need to take at heart. Number one, when it comes to the Sabbath and the rest, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is our rest. You don't have to work for your salvation. That, that was all a shadow of the substance. He is our rest. Remember what he said? Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest praise god that our salvation is not dependent upon us that's one thing to take into consideration you know they committed here to honor the sabbath and that would be the seventh day they would you know take off from work they would get rest also the seventh year and what that meant is they would till their land for six years and the seventh year they would actually do nothing they had to live by faith maybe they saved up enough but um, that was their commitment because prior to this, they had violated that part of the law. All this is, it requires faith. You know, I mean, even today we have businesses that are open on Sundays and we've forgotten that that was a time when they weren't, you know. Um, I think of Chick-fil-A and I just, man, those guys are cool, huh? Because they're, they're closed on Sundays. You guys know that? So we should all go to Chick-fil-A after service today. I mean... Hobby Lobby, you know, another business, you know, and I think that's kind of cool. We're not, it's today for us as New Testament Christians, it's not mandated upon us. You read Colossians 2, 13 through 17. It says, let no one judge you regarding Sabbaths. Because Jesus, what he did was he took it all away and he nailed it to the cross, right? Also in, in the book of Romans 14, 1 through 7, it says, Some esteem this day, some esteem that day, that each one be thoroughly convinced in his own heart. But I will tell you this, when it comes to the Sabbath, I think it's a good idea, right? Don't you? Every once in a while, take some rest. How many of you guys like to take naps? <laughs> you know, I mean, a day, and, I, and, I, and I'm not, not just a day where you don't work, but a day where you just, you just kind of like seeking the Lord. You know, you're in the Word, you're in prayer. I mean, for me, it's Monday, believe it or not, because on Sundays, I'm, I'm violating it, and Saturdays, and, but for me, Mondays, I'm in my PJs, you know, and I'm just reading the Bible and uh, spending time with the Lord and, you know, kind of lazy, but at the same time, trying to soak it in. And so, you know, for us, for them, it meant exactly that. No work seventh day, no, you know, farming the seventh year. They even said right there at the end of verse 31, that they would forego the, the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. And that talks about how they would also forgive the debts. You read it in Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 2. It says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. How many of you here are in debt? No, I'm just joking. I won't ask you guys that. 
Wouldn't that be cool? But I tell you what, man, the economic law of Israel was so amazing. It made everything fair because everybody got their land according to their tribes and they were able to keep it. And so, you know, one thing you'll see in the book of Nehemiah chapter 5 was that was one of their problems. That was their problem. They were charging debts. They were charging interest. And the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And so here, it's kind of cool because as they're entering into this covenant, basically what they're doing is they're dealing with their issues. They're dealing with it. We've got a problem with being unequally yoked. We have a problem in that we have violated the Sabbath. We have a problem in that we are ripping off the poor people. And they began to deal with their sins. You guys, we need to do the same thing. You know, what areas are you struggling in? You got to get honest with God. You got to get on your knees. You got to ask him like Psalm 139. Search my heart, Lord. Show me any wicked way inside of me. Because that gets in the way of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. And so, you know, our prayer life, everything gets messed up. And so what I encourage you guys to do, and I'm talking to myself as well, is as I'm reading this word and I'm looking at the mirror and I'm seeing my own sins specifically, what are they? Maybe it's anger. And God says, you know, when we make excuses and we rationalize things, maybe, you know, I don't know what it is. That's between you and the Lord, but he will show you. They're getting specific right here. It reminds me of when the people were going to John the Baptist. And, you know, John the Baptist says, hey, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Right now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and I'm ready to chop it down. And so he's dealing with the people. It was a ministry of repentance. And so they were all coming to him saying, well, what should we do? You know, what should we do? Tax collectors, you know, hey, you guys shouldn't charge too much. Soldiers, what should we do? He said, be content with your wages. He dealt with each person individually. God will deal with us. And it's a beautiful thing. That's why we don't grow. That's why. Because whatever sin is in our life, we're not giving it to God. When you begin to overcome, when God shows you what it is, and by His Word, He gives you the strength, not only the will, but the power to overcome, you will grow. You see? And now you can go on to do different things where you're no longer fighting your spouse or you're no longer fighting yourself. Now, in one sense, you can enter into a a fight with the devil, a fight with Goliath for the glory of God. And so he's dealing specifically with them and all these things. These were the areas that they were struggling in. So they made a commitment, right? And then in verse 32, also he says, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbath, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. And here we see as they enter into this covenant commitment that they agree to pay really what was the temple tax. You read it in Exodus 30, 11 through 16. Right here, it's a half a shekel. Eventually, it went down to one-third of a shekel right here. And then it started with a half, went down to a third. And then by the time of Jesus' day, it was back to a half a shekel, which was charged to every man 20 years and above. And so you guys weren't paying the temple tax. 
So now, Lord, we commit to giving to you what belongs to you. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said, the original tax was used to make silver sockets and hooks for the tabernacle, but in subsequent years it helped pay for the expense of the ministry. And so they said, we'll do this. In verse 34, it says, we cast lots among the priests, the Levites and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our, for, according to our fathers' houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Now, according to Leviticus 6, 12 through 13, there was always to be a fire burning on the brazen altar. Always. And there's something special about that concept. But in order for that fire to be burning, someone had to bring wood. And so they cast lots for it. They're like, okay. And you're probably thinking, I know what you guys are thinking. You're like, I don't want to take the wood. Oh, hopefully I don't get the lot. You know what they're probably thinking? Because God was moving so much. I hope I get to do it. <laughs> I hope that lot falls on me so that I get to bring a wood offering to God, you know? I mean, and that's, I think that that's got to be our heart. Oh, he'll do it. She'll do it. No, how about, how about you? You know, it's so cool when you see this heart and they're entering into this covenant, you know? Um, verse 35, and we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord. And so the rest of this chapter has to deal with first fruits and firstborn. And so how many of you here have uh, fruit trees at home? Just out of curiosity. Why haven't you been bringing that stuff here? I'm just curious. I'm just joking. You know what? We do get uh, fruit from you, and I appreciate it. We got like these avocados, really small, but very, very good. We got one zucchini. I'm serious. It was about that big, right? And they're like, I'm giving it to the Lord, you know? But um, in those days, that's literally what they had to do. First fruits. We don't know for sure how much. We don't know. Some say it was 10%. No, the 10% was never applied to the first fruit. So, you know, you write off, basically what that means is off the top, best of the best. I'm not going to give God my leftovers. And that's what they're saying. They're entering to this covenant. We have dropped the ball on this. We have not given to God what belongs to God. Now, before I forget, I just want to tell you guys this, though. You know, we're not here asking you for your money because let me tell you something. God has blessed us as a church. As a matter of fact, I want to thank you for the way that you give. I can't believe what God is doing here. It's amazing to me because God has blessed this church. We're a healthy church. Sometimes churches are like this and people are not giving obediently. That's where they were. They were in a time where they were not giving the way that they should. And so now they're entering into a covenant. We're going to give God the best of the best. We're going to give him off the top. We're going to give him the fat of the firstborn. That's the best. And, and, and so it would be the harvest of their crops, the vineyards, the trees. In verse 36, he says, To bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough. Um, see, they had pizza back then. You guys know that, right? our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, 
and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And so the first fruits, the firstborn of their sons belonged to God. And you guys remember the story back in Exodus when God sent the final plague, the firstborn died. And so in essence, all the firstborn male men and animals belonged to God. But they were then able to redeem them. And so what they would do is they would take their firstborn son to the temple or to the tabernacle and then they would play pay the required uh, fee, and then they would redeem them back to them. But they belonged to, to God. They uh, were not only the men, but also uh, everything, sons, cattle, herds, and flocks, uh, dough, grain, wine, and oil. All of this went to the house of God, to the priests who ministered in the house of God. And he mentions the tithes in verse 37 and 38. It's interesting. People ask questions about that. There were actually three tithes in the Old Testament. They would first give off the top, uh, and then they would give uh, a tithe of the 90%, and then they would give another tithe once a year. And so, you know, there was a lot of offerings and tithes going on back in those days. This was all used uh, in order to support the priests and the Levites, and then they would take it and they would store it in rooms that were to be allocated for this in the temple. And so we read in verse 38, the priests, the descendant of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse for the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offerings of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, And we will not neglect the house of our God. And and so it's interesting the way it all worked out. uh, It was very practical. The people would bring their offerings to the Levites. If you remember, the Levites were spread out throughout the land. And as they bring their offerings to the Levites, uh, then the, the priests would be present witnessing the whole transaction, perhaps to add some accountability And from there, the Levites would deliver a tithe of the tithe to the priests that would be ministering and those Levites in Jerusalem. And when they would arrive there, they would place them in special rooms and special containers in order to provide for those who served in the ministry as helpers and gatekeepers and singers. And everything was to be done for the glory of God. And the principle there at the end of the chapter is this, that we will not neglect the house of our God. And of course, that is in reference to those who would minister and prayerfully, you guys, as we bring in an application today, you know, a minister is a servant. That's what a minister is supposed to be. They're not someone to be served. They are to serve and prayerfully you know, as we give to the work of the ministry, that that, that goes to a, a individuals that, that understand that concept of service, of ministry, you know, and, and as we give, they serve, and hopefully they're praying, and they're teaching, and they're serving, and they're doing what they're called to do, but it is also in reference, not just to the people, but I think in, in part to the building. I think there is an element there, uh, Warren Wiersbe talks a lot about how when churches begin to see the dilapidation of their physical structure 
It actually is a manifestation of something that's deeper that's going on inside of the church. And that's why we gotta, we got to give our church a facelift every once in a while. we got to paint it and, you know, who knows, maybe one day we'll get you guys new chairs, but I doubt it. And um, let's see, what else? But I will tell you this, we are in the process of fixing up our children's ministry. We are going to lay down new floors and a whole bunch of stuff, man. We want to make it just look nice. We want to put a whole bunch of money into this because hopefully one day God will give us a building that we own. But in the meantime, we want to fix up everything so that it'll look nice. All that is because we see that in the scriptures. You remember in the book of Haggai, they weren't fixing up the house of the Lord. And, you know, Haggai said, hey, what's up? That's what he said. You guys have your house, it's all nice, man, and the, and the church is not, is not really what it should be. I don't know about you, but when I think of God's house, I think it should be beautiful. I think it should be excellent. I think it should be clean. We should not neglect these things. And as we go through our study today, we see how God calls us out of the world. God calls us into a walk with Him, and that walk is based on His Word. And so I pray you guys would know that, man, God loves you so much. And if you would just come, and if I, I know the Lord has really been just dealing with me, you know, even though I'm a pastor, you know, I've been serving with the Lord for so long, there's just like a greater surrender that he's calling me to. I pray you guys would be experiencing the same thing because he wants to move. And if you're here and you don't know the Lord and you're not a Christian, I pray that today you would place your faith in Jesus Christ and that you would choose to follow him.